0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Luke. How many of you had opened up to John already? Just Lydia, huh? (laughs) Book of Luke chapter number four is where we're going to be at today. And some time back we began a series that I've entitled Refocus. And my desire through this is for us to bring Jesus in focus. Because our cares, our concerns, the things of life, our circumstances, so many other things can push Jesus kind of out of focus. He becomes a little blurry in our minds and in our eyes, and we can be distracted from him. And as we go through this, I want to be just looking through the Gospels and seeing who Jesus is according to his word, not according to tradition, not according to religion, not according to... Our thoughts or our desires, but who is he in his word? And so that's what we've been doing. And what we've looked at last week was there was a man, it says that he was a nobleman that had come to Jesus, and uh, this man had a big problem. His son was sick at the point of death. He said he's going to die if something doesn't happen. And so I'm going to try Jesus. I've tried everything else I'm going to try Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus. He tells Jesus what his problem is and proceeds to tell him how and when to fix it. And that's just like us. We go to God and we say, okay, God, I've got this problem I can't do anything about, but I know how you need to fix it, right? And we're better off whenever we realize that he is God and we are not, and we let him be in control. But even after he uh, tried to tell God how to fix it and when to fix it, he also Uh, kind of put Jesus to the test here. He wasn't completely sure whenever he came. He didn't have any other options, if you will. This was his last-ditch effort. And so he came to Jesus basically saying, if you do this, then I will believe. Prove yourself to me. I want you to come with me. I want to see you heal my son. I want to uh, be able to experience this, go through all of this, and then I will believe. So it's kind of like, Jesus, prove that you're who you say that you are, but we find that Jesus is seeking those who will believe on him. He's seeking those who will uh, have faith in him and through his word, and so Jesus told him, your son is healed, go your way, and he had a choice to make, and so he decided, I'm going to trust what Jesus has told me, and I'm going to go home at Jesus' word and believe that he has done what I've asked him to do. And as he's going home, he hears from one of his servants that his son has been healed and was healed at the time that he had asked of Jesus. And so overall, what we have looked at in this passage is that we have all sorts of things going on in our lives. We want to be in control of how they get fixed. We want to put Jesus to the test. But ultimately, Jesus wants us to trust him even through the trials. He wants us to trust him before we see the solution to our problem, knowing based upon His word and His character that He has us in His hand, that He is taking care of us, that He is more than capable to work all things together for our good. And so we can go on our way in this life, trusting Him, knowing that He is going to take care of us. And one of these days we will see our prayers answered. One of these days we'll see our needs met and these things fulfilled, and we can glorify Him, we can praise Him, and... uh, Uh, celebrate when that happens. But until then, we just need to keep following him. And I guess the song that we sang there this morning, May the Lord Find Us Faithful. Let's just continue being faithful and uh, uh, serving him, knowing that he is and that he's going to take care of us, regardless of whether we've seen it happen yet or not. Okay. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus continuing on in this region of Galilee. Remember, we're trying to kind of go through this in chronological order, okay? Uh, Event by event as it happened. And you'll find that the Gospels aren't necessarily arranged in chronological order. Uh, Some of them are a little bit more topical, if you will. Uh, Some of them have a purpose behind their writing, and so they order the things that they write according to that purpose. One will... Have a an event or a detail that the others don't, and so we compare one with the other and kind of get a more complete picture of what Jesus did and what his earthly ministry was like. And so the passage that we're coming to today in Luke chapter number four, uh, Jesus had been in Cana of Galilee last week with a nobleman's son. The nobleman was from Capernaum, and now Jesus is going to go up to Nazareth. All these are places in uh, in Galilee. Okay. All these taking place at the same time. And so he goes up to Nazareth, which is his hometown. And the news of all that he has done and all that he has taught whenever he was going throughout the regions of Galilee, while he was down in Jerusalem, whenever he cleansed the temple and taught down there, all of that news is coming back to his hometown. This is the people that he was raised around the ones that he went to school with, the ones that taught him whenever he was in school, Uh, as he had been an apprentice under his father, uh, his stepfather, Joseph, as a carpenter. These would have been people who had bought the things that he had made, who had went to synagogue with him, that were well acquainted with him. And as he comes into town, they're wondering, what is all this hype about? What's going on with him? What is he going to say? What is he all about? And they are more than likely a little cynical, a little skeptical, because this is Jesus, Joseph and Mary's son. We have his brothers. We have his sisters here. And so what is this that they're talking about him being some great teacher or him possibly being the Messiah? And so they are looking at him with skepticism. Okay, And as he comes there, we're going to find that those who should have known him the best were the ones who were the most quickly offended by him. So let's read in Luke chapter number four, starting with verse number 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. That's a good response, isn't it? And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place wherein it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the time together, for the fellowship with one another. Lord, we pray for your blessings on your word and for the preaching of it. Just guide and direct my thoughts, my words, that they would be helpful, that they would be accurate. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, help me, Lord, to, to preach your word as you've given it to me. And we just pray, Lord, ask you that you would work in the hearts and lives of each person here, that you would draw them closer to you. If there's anyone here that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon you, and they would trust you as their Savior. And Lord, I just thank you so much for all that you do, and all you're going to do, and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we are saying, Jesus has been going through Galilee. He's been teaching in the synagogues. He's been uh, doing miracles. We know that he uh, healed the son of uh, the nobleman down in Capernaum and he comes to his hometown, and it is the Sabbath day, and whenever he comes to his hometown on the Sabbath day, it says that it was his custom to go to the synagogue, so that was the equivalent he went to church on Sunday. That was what he was used to doing, and even though at that time the Jewish religion had been corrupted, even though uh, it had its flaws, he still found himself uh, there at the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath day. And as things was going about there, their custom was if there was a rabbi or a visiting preacher or something like that coming through, they would allow them the time to read from the word of God and to expound on it a little bit. So this is what Jesus was doing. They brought him uh, the scrolls out, brought him the scroll of uh, uh, Isaiah is the one that he had asked for. He opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he reads verse one and half of verse two, okay? And as he reads that, he stops mid-verse, rolls it up, hands it back, and then he sets down to speak from what he's just read. And they were in anticipation thinking, you need to read the rest of it. Why did you stop there? Because if you read the rest of Isaiah chapter number 61, it talks in the beginning about Jesus coming, about the Messiah, I should say, coming and about what he was bringing to this earth. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who were in prison, all these things. And then it talks about the restoration of Israel and about his kingdom. And about in the last half of verse 2, it talks about his, God's wrath being released upon this earth and Israel being freed and Jesus ruling and reigning. And that's what they were looking for. And so Jesus stopped at maybe one of the most provocative places he could have because he divided up his first coming and his second coming. The first time he came bringing salvation, the second time whenever he comes back, he's going to come as the righteous king, ruling and reigning. They were looking for the second coming, not the first coming. Okay, And so that's why he divided that where he did. And so he sets down and he begins to speak. And what he says is, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And what that meant to those Jews that were sitting there is, I am the Messiah. That was his uh, that was his proclamation before them. So they've known him since he was an infant. They have been around him all along, and for him to sit down before them and say, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I am the Messiah that is coming to set at liberty those who are bound to... Uh, preach the gospel, the good news to those who are poor. I am the one who you have been looking for for all of these years. I am the Messiah. That would have been a pretty incredible statement. Now, Luke, in his writings here, he says these were gracious words of the Lord, but they didn't perceive them to be gracious. They looked at one another confused and said, is this not the son of Joseph? Do we not know his brothers and his sisters? Are they not all around us? There is no way that he can be the Messiah. And so as he knows what's going on in their heads and in their hearts, he says in verse number 23, you're going to desire of me. You're going to want me to perform miracles and do wonders and prove myself to you. In the other places, people believed on him and he did miracles. But they're holding out. They're saying, we're not going to believe until you do the miracles. We're wanting evidence. And not only that, he knows their hearts that even if he provides them with the evidence, they're still not going to believe. Right. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus that uh, the rich man opened up his eyes and hell being in torments and looked over and saw uh, Abraham or Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he begged that Lazarus would go back and warn his brothers about that place called hell, that they wouldn't come there. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he says, no, if someone came back from the dead, they would listen. If there was a miracle, if there was a sign, if there was a wonder, then they would believe. And Abraham says that if they will not believe Abraham and the prophets, if they not believe the word of God, they're not going to believe though someone rose from the dead. So what's going on with Jesus and his, uh, his hometown here? He says, it doesn't matter what I do. You're still not going to believe me. See, belief is a matter of the heart, not the head. And so you can have all the head knowledge. You can see and experience all these different things. But for someone who refuses to believe, nothing is going to be enough, right? And so after he tells them this, he gives them a couple illustrations out of the Old Testament. And he says that Elijah had all of the people who were suffering in the time of the drought that he could have went to but instead of being sent to one of the Jews because they were being judged for their unbelief, right? That he was sent to a Gentile woman, right? And she believed. He went and he asked her to bake him a cake and uh, give him something to eat, something to drink, and she gave it to him, believing him, whenever all of the Jews had rejected him, and he stayed with her throughout the rest of the famine and sustained her through giving her enough food, enough enough to eat and to drink during that time, right? And then after that, he says, then there was Elisha. And there were plenty of lepers in Israel at that time, but Elisha didn't heal them. He healed Naaman, the Syrian, because the Jews were rejecting God at that time. And Naaman believed. He exercised faith and was healed. So what's Jesus' message to them? He says, you're not going to believe no matter what I do, but there are those who are going to believe, and the Gentiles are going to believe, right? And we all know that the Jews hated the Gentiles, and so whenever he said God is going to offer up healing, the Messiah is going to show mercy and favor toward the Gentiles, They were enraged. And they actually, him being at his hometown, they actually took him outside of the city and had planned to take him and toss him over a cliff to kill him because he said God would have mercy on the Gentiles. And in case anyone hasn't caught this, we're Gentiles. So praise the Lord he has mercy on the Gentiles, okay? But they were so upset over this that they didn't believe him and that they were going to be left out because of their unbelief, and the Gentiles were going to be blessed because of their belief, they said, we're just going to kill you now. And so they rejected him, and they were offended by him. Right? And so what I want to look at from this passage today is five reasons why people are offended at Jesus. Five reasons why people are offended at Jesus. Because these people definitely were offended, right? And I'll tell you, whenever the truth of God's word is proclaimed, everyone is going to respond in one way or the other. Either they are going to believe it, and they are going to accept it, or they are going to become angry and hostile toward it. Really, whenever it comes to Jesus, there is no midpoint. It is a dividing line here. It is something where you can't just be setting on the fence about. You either accept him or you reject him. Okay? And so we're going to look, as I said, five reasons why they were offended at Jesus. And one thing that jumped out at me as I was looking at this is the fact that these were the people who knew him the best, or should have known him the best. And before we get started any further in this, I want to say that just because we know him, just because we have been exposed to the Bible and we've been exposed to the gospel, just because uh, we are considered to be in a Christian nation, and that the gospel and that the Bible has been so widely uh, that we've been so widely exposed to this in the Western nations does not mean that we are widely going to accept Him and not be offended by Him. A lot of times, those who have had the most exposure to the gospel are the first ones to get offended by the gospel. you ever think about that? the ones who've been raised in church, the one who who have heard the gospel and have become hardened to it, the ones who have been in religion their entire lives. Yet whenever they hear the truth of God's word, they say, wait a minute, I don't like this. They are offended by it. And so five reasons why people are offended by Jesus. And the first one is they knew of him, but they didn't know him. They knew of him, but they didn't know him. Uh, Have you ever met someone... And just from a brief meeting, just from being around them a little bit, you thought you had a good idea of who they were. Maybe someone that you work with and you've been around them at the job and you assume that the way that they are at the job and the little box that you build for them, that's their entire personality. That's the entire uh, being who they are. You think that you know them. Have you ever went out and then seen them outside of work and been like, "Hold, hold on for a second. There's a whole different side to them that I've never seen. Maybe the one who's quiet and reserved here is not so quiet and reserved when they get outside of work, right? Someone that you've been used to being around in one setting, when they get in a different setting, they're a little bit different. Or maybe they have skills and abilities you never even realized existed. And then you learn that they can do these things. It's like, wait, I never expected that. I never knew they were like that. I didn't know. And I'm not talking about being two-faced or being fake or anything like that. I'm just saying that a lot of times we take a small amount of information, and we form an entire opinion about someone from our limited information that we have, right? And that's what these people in Nazareth had done. They took him, they put him in the box, they said, he is the hometown boy. He is the son of Mary and Joseph. He is the carpenter. He is this, he is this. And they identified him with that little box that they put him in, never understanding, never realizing that he could be more than just that. On top of that, they also thought they knew who the Messiah was. They looked through the Old Testament. They knew what religion had taught them. And religion had taught them that the Messiah was going to come and that he was going to throw out Rome, that he was going to set on a throne, that he was going to rule and reign, elevate Israel to being the world power and world dominance, and the Jews were going to be on the top of the heap. And that's who they were looking at. That's who they were looking for. And so based on their feelings, on their emotions, on their interpretations, on what they were thinking, and based on what they had been taught, they looked at Jesus and said, no, he doesn't fit the bill. There's no way that he's the Messiah. They knew him or knew of him, but didn't truly know him for what he was. And as we apply this to ourselves today and to the world which we live in, there are plenty of people who know of Jesus. They've heard his name. They may have read the Bible. They may have been exposed to him. They've seen pictures of what they think that he is, right? They've been exposed to religion. They have a surface understanding of who he is. They have determined throughout their feelings, throughout their own ideas, about their own imaginations of what Jesus is like. You have someone to describe Jesus, and they'll use things like, well, I feel like he is this way, or I believe him to be like this. I think that he is this way, and so they have made a picture, an illustration in their mind of who Jesus is, or they may say, well, I was taught this. I went to mass. I went to church. I went to whatever. And I was taught that Jesus is this way. And so this is the box that I've made to put Jesus in. And so this is what I believe that he is like. And so, yes, I know of him. But do you know him? Do you know the the Jesus of the scriptures? Do you know him for what he is? And the biggest question, do you know him as your savior? Because there are many people who know of him. But the Bible tells us that in the day of judgment, that there would be ones that stood before him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not did uh, cast out demons in your name and did many mighty works in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And so we might know the name of Jesus. We might proclaim the name of Jesus. We might claim the name of Jesus. We may say that we're Christians. But what Jesus are we believing on? We looked at this in Sunday school as we were talking about Judas. And Judas had in his mind an idea of what the Messiah would be. He had an idea of what Jesus was. And he was even exposed to Jesus. He was around Jesus. And in spite of all that, he was offended by Jesus because he didn't actually know him. Right? This world has so many different ideas about who Jesus is. They have so many. Honestly, if you would take and put it together what picture that religion paints of him, you're going to find so many different uh, Jesuses that people follow, right? But whenever you get into the scripture, whenever you get into the word of God, and you find <coughs> what does the Bible say about Jesus, when you find who he really is, what he really taught, how he really feels, what he really expects, what he's really doing, Those who claim to know him best, those who have had the most exposure to him, say, wait, I want to hold on to my version of Jesus. I want to go by what I think that he is. I don't like who he really is, right? And so we fall in love with this picture, with this facade, with this imagery that we've set up. And really, we're following after a lie, a false impression, right? And so whenever we look at this, people will be offended at Jesus whenever they know of him, but they don't truly know him. The second thing that we see here is that people will be offended by Jesus whenever they reject what he's offered. When they reject what he's offered. When we look at this passage, he opens up the scriptures, and down in verse number 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Gospel means good news, right? I'm preaching the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken, or brokenhearted, and to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And so Jesus came, and he says, I am the Messiah, I come to give good news to those who are poor. I come to heal those who are hurting. I come to release those who are captive. I come to give sight to those who are blind. And those who were listening to this, being Jews, being God's chosen and favored people, said, wait a minute. We're not poor. We're not blind. We're not captive. We're not broken. We don't want what he is offering. Go ahead, Jesus. Read on down in that passage in Isaiah. Don't stop there. We want a king. We want ruling. We want power. We want authority. We want all these other things. And Jesus says, I'm offering you healing. I'm offering you liberty. I'm offering you uh, good news for those who have been cast out and rejected, those who are hurting, those who are broken, I'm offering all these things. And they said, we don't want that. We don't need that. We look at the the Pharisees of Jesus' day, and they came to him and they, they were ridiculing him. They were judging him because they said, he is a friend of publicans and sinners. He eats with those that we reject. He eats with those that we have refused. And his response to them is, is they who are whole don't need a physician. It's those who are sick, right? Mm -hmm. See, the Pharisees said, we don't need what he's offering. We don't need his help. We've got it all together. We've got it all figured out. We know who we are. We know what we have. We know what we want. And what you are offering to us doesn't appeal to us. He says in uh, in Revelation, as he's writing to the uh, church at Laodicea, He says that they're going to to say that they are uh, rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But the response that God says to that church is that they don't realize that they are miserable and blind and wretched and naked. Isn't that close to what Jesus was saying here? I come to heal the broken, give sight to the blind, release the captives. And so the church at Laodicea said, we have it all under control. We have everything that we need. We don't need him. And that's what this group was saying as well. And so where this applies to us today is we can be Christians for so long. We can be around the things of God for so long. We can be so well acquainted with Jesus for so long that we think we've got it figured out. We know the right things to say. We can doctor up the outside and make everything look good. We're at church on Sunday. We're living the life. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And so we have no need of what he has to offer. And so we think we've got it under control. We think that we can do it on our own. And he says, I am offering to you health. I'm offering to you healing. I'm offering to you liberty. I'm offering to you sight. Nope, we're good. How dare you insinuate that we need your help? How dare you insinuate that we are broken or there is something that we can't handle because we've got it figured out. We've got it under control. We don't actually need you, right? And it's not just in the matter of salvation, but even after we are saved, even as Christians, uh, a lot of times what he is offering to us, he is offering his help, his guidance, his strength, his spirit, his word, he's offering direction in our lives. He's offering to help us overcome the things that have us bound. He's offering to give us sight to the things that are blinding us. And we say, no, we're good. We know what we're doing, Jesus. We know what's going on. And we become offended at him because we don't need what he's offering. We're looking for something else. The next thing that we find here, ways to be offended at Jesus, the reasons why people are offended at Jesus, is they demanded what he withheld. They demanded what he withheld. In verse number 23, he says, you're surely going to say this proverb, physician heal thyself. You're going to demand that I do the things for you that I have done in other places. You're going to see how I'm working in the lives of other people, and you're going to get mad at me because I'm not doing that in your life too you're going to see things going on in their life and you're going to be mad because I'm not doing it for you. And so they felt entitled. They said of all people that you should be helping, that you should be healing, that you should be doing miracles for. You should be doing it for us because, hey, look at how long we've known you. And so there was an entitlement mentality. And even as Christians, we can get Bitter toward God when we see Him doing things in the life of others, when we begin to expect things from Him and we don't see Him following through. Right? God, how could you let this happen to me? How can you fix their problem and not fix mine? How could you save them and not my family member? How could you deliver them? and not deliver me. How could you let this happen? Because God has seemingly withheld something from us that we think that we have a right to, that we think that we're entitled to. But is that not our human nature from the very beginning? We look back at Adam and Eve, and there was one thing that God withheld from them, and that was the one thing that they demanded, right? And it wasn't just there. You go all the way throughout scripture, you're going to find That whenever the people of Israel, they were being led by God. God was their king. He was sending judges and priests and all these things. And they said, we don't want what you're offering, your leadership, your guidance. We want a king like all the other nations around us, right? And they demanded what he withheld, and they made Saul their king. We see David a little bit later. He says, yeah, I've got everything. I've got all these blessings of God, but I want Bathsheba too, right? Right? And so we become offended at God whenever our eyes get on what we don't have, on what has been withholden from us, and we feel as if we're entitled to that, right? So what we've seen so far, when we think that we know him, but we really don't, whenever he's offering so much to us, but we don't want what he's offering, and whenever we decide that we want what he's withholding, all of these things are going to lead us to being unhappy with God, to us being offended by him, to us being bitter against him, to us being mad at Jesus, right? And you say, but wait, we're Christians. Wait, we've known him for so long. We're not going to be upset with him. What about these people? Sometimes it's the ones that's known him the longest that's going to be the most apt to fall into these ruts, right? And so they demanded what he withheld. The next thing that we find in this is that they love what he hates, they love what he hates, and this one's a little bit in uh, a little bit reading between the lines here. But we find that we have desires that are contrary to his will. We find that whenever we start enjoying the things of this world, whenever we start loving sin and unrighteousness and wickedness, whenever we start loving the things that he hates, we're going to become contentious toward him. We are going to start. Uh being bitter toward him. We are going to be on a different page, if you will, right? Because if nothing else, our relationship with God is a relationship. And what happens to any relationship, whatever the two in that relationship are going different directions or on a different page. It's going to be trouble, isn't it? And so whenever we love what he hates, whenever our heart and our affections are upon this life and on this world. We are going to become bitter toward him. We are going to start uh, rejecting him. We are going to have a little bit of trouble, aren't we? And so these people in Nazareth, Jesus said, I'm coming here for this purpose. I'm coming here in order to bring salvation and to bring peace. And they're like, no, we don't want that. We're enjoying our sin We're enjoying our religion. We're enjoying our attempt at dominance and self-righteousness. We're enjoying all these things that Jesus came to deliver them from, right? They loved what he hated. And the very last thing that I want to look at here, and I think this one's a little bit better documented, so I'll spend a little extra time on it, is that they hated what he loved. That's simple enough, isn't it? they hated what he loved. What it was that sent them over the edge, what it was that offended them so badly, was the fact that Jesus came for the whole world. The Bible says that God so loved the world, and whenever he told them about the Gentiles, whenever he spoke about the Gentiles favorably, they said, we hate those people that you love. And they became offended. And so whenever we hate righteousness, whenever we hate goodness, when we hate people, a lot of times it's easy for us to link together people with their sin. We lump them together, right? We throw them all together. They were able to look at the Gentiles, characterize them by the sins they were committing, by the reasons they didn't like them. And so they justified hating the people that were ensnared and entangled with sin. We do the same thing today, don't we? We go like the Pharisees up in the temple and we say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like them. But here is what Jesus was preaching here. He says there are people who are bound, people who are poor, people who are blind, people who are broken, and what has put them in that shape? What has put them in that position? Sin. This is something that we miss out in the entire Bible, is that sin has caused all of these afflictions upon humanity. That sin is our ruin. Sin is what Jesus hates, because it destroys us. Why is it that, it, that Jesus hates it so much? It is because that it destroys those that he loves. Isn't that what happens? And so we fall, we fall into these sins, and it produces the fruit of sinfulness. It starts reaping its consequences in our lives. It starts bringing about the brokenness and the hurt and all of these different things. And Jesus says, I come to heal people. I come to take care of what is causing this. I come to deal with sin. But they couldn't get past the sinners. They didn't see their own sin. They saw the sin of others. And they pitted themselves against the others, right? And if we could see sin the way that Jesus does, it would transform our lives. It would change our priorities. It would change how we are living because he sees it as a cancer that is affecting us and needs to be eradicated. We see the outward results of it, right? And so he says, I'm coming to bring deliverance. I'm coming to bring salvation. And they said, we don't need to be saved. He says, I have a plan. I have a will. I have a way for you. They said, we don't want that. He says, I hate these things. They're like, we don't want to let go of them. We love them. And he says, I love them these people. I want to see them saved. I want to see them growing. I want to see a work done in their lives. And they said, but I hate them. And in every area of this that we're seeing so far, we are pitting ourselves against God. We are setting ourselves on the throne. We are saying we think that we know what's best. And so it comes back to two things. It comes to a lack of knowledge. We don't know him the way we think that we do. And because we don't know him, we don't trust him. Right? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why we emphasize so much reading scripture and learning from scripture and studying scripture and hearing it taught and preached is because it builds our faith. We trust him more and then that's going to cause our heart and our desires to align with him. And then we're not going to be offended by him. Then we can rejoice in him. We can be glad because we are no longer running contrary to him. And so hopefully you followed me along as we've looked at this today. But whenever you are ignorant of who he really is, you're going to be offended by who he really is. Whenever he is offering to you something that you don't believe you need, you're going to reject it. And you're going to be seeking after something that he knows is not good for you or that he has not not got you to that place of yet, right? Whenever you love that which he hates and hate that which he loves, all these things are going to put you as an adversary to God. And even those who are most... who have been most associated with him. Even those who have been around him for the longest can fall into these things. And so whenever we begin to get offended by Jesus, it happens. When we begin to get offended by Jesus, we need to go back and look and say, what is it that is wrong with me? Where is it that I have gotten off track? Where is it that I have went astray that is causing me... To misunderstand him. For me to be unhappy with him. Because whenever you know him. Whenever you're walking with him. You're going to be satisfied with him. Right? He came to bring us life. And health. And joy. And peace. And when we get turned sideways. When we get the wrong direction. We're going to be. Offended. We're going to desire to throw him overboard, if you will. That's what they were trying to do, right? And I don't want us to ever be in that position. So whether you're a Christian here today, whether you've trusted him as your Savior, or you've not, either way you can be offended in him. The Bible says, Great peace have they which love my law, and nothing shall offend them. Whenever we love his word, when we love who it shows us he is. It's going to take away that offense. And so if you look at your life, are there places that you're unhappy with Jesus? Are there things that caused you to be bitter toward him? Do you resent him because he is good to those who you don't think deserve goodness? Are you resentful because he has offered to you access to him? He has offered to you help and strength and assurance and guidance and peace, but you haven't taken him up on it? There's all these different areas we can apply this, right? But if you find yourself bitter toward him, I assure you, the problem's not with him. It's not. You may have bought into a lie. You may have painted up a Jesus that isn't the one of the Bible. You may have fell for a false Jesus of religion. But I'll tell you, the real Jesus. Whenever he talked to the woman at Samaria as he's talking by the the well, he says that he would be a well of water springing up into life, right? Refreshing, replenishing, life-giving, right? That's who he said he was. Is that the Jesus that you're following? Is that the one that you know? If not do not be offended by him. So I pray, I hope that the Lord has used this today. I hope that this has made sense to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we see that it's extremely possible for us to be exposed to you, be around you, be well, uh, well accustomed to you, but yet not really know you. And be going in an opposite direction and become offended and discouraged and whatnot. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, to see you for who you really are. Lord, that you would align our hearts with yours. That you would help us to trust you, to put our faith and our trust in you in all things. And tear down the idols and the false representations and the false ideas about who you are. And Lord, that we would see you high and lifted up. That we would see you as you are. And allow you to be God, allow you to lead us, allow you to guide us, allow you, Lord, just to continue on and us faithfully follow. We thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.